Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrett. And welcome to episode 32. Once again, uh, it's been a while between drinks, there's a lot going on. I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, I do apologise that I'm not uh, pumping them out as I used to. Uh, our film screened in South Africa back in April. That was really big news and very exciting. And I did a little bit of press on that, which you can see on our on our social media account. Uh, great response. I loved the fact that uh, I was able to engage with audiences and people that watched it. Not too many spoilers put out there, thankfully, which may or may not be a good thing. But um, uh, I'm I'm happy to say that we are going to be able to announce very soon, and this keeps dragging on, but we are going to be able to announce very soon the Australian release date, which is going to be in August of this year, so actually not very long. Uh, I just haven't been able to um, get confirmation of the exact release date from the broadcaster, but uh, those dates and the broadcaster and how you can watch it are going to come out. I'll definitely do a, I'll probably even just devote an episode to that and and certainly put all the, the press release out on our social media accounts, so stay tuned. Uh, neglecting the pot a bit, I know, so I have been trying to put some more episodes together, but I, I did have a couple of guests pull out, unfortunately, which um, set me back. So in in looking around at other things that I could talk about in relation to Australian rugby, uh, one of the ones that I wanted to do an episode on was the financial situation. We've touched on this before. I think we spoke to um, Jeff Parks from the Rugby Raw about the complexities around Australian uh, operating in a global rugby market. Uh, we, we dove into the episode uh, when the Western Force got axed and how the Senate inquiry exposed a lot of the inner workings of Rugby Australia when it came down to the costs involved in running super rugby teams. But obviously, it's one of the perennial problems we have is there's just never enough money. And obviously, the COVID setback uh in the last two years has pushed the game into dire straits. There was a massive crisis in 2020. Uh, They came on not knowing uh, there was a new board, a new chairman, not knowing whether or not uh, the game was even going to be able to pull through. And that was fair of all sports, but certainly rugby union was on the precipice of bankruptcy and they've gotten through it. So I thought I'd do an episode where we just have a bit of a chat, see if we can find anything further, and, and to bring on board someone who's far more knowledgeable about this sort of stuff than me, um, I got in touch with Dr. David Bond, who's um, often on Twitter commenting on these sorts of things and, and rugby in general, but he's an academic at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, in the area of finance. He's an accountant, and uh, he's also a board member of the Sydney Rugby Union, who run the Shoot Shield, uh, as well as other organisations like uh, Women's Sport Australia. He just did a video which dissected the recent annual report that Rugby Australia put out. Uh, it was just done last month. Uh, please watch it. Go to YouTube before you, you listen on. And just it's only about six, seven minutes. Uh, it's called Rugby Australia. Back in the money? Question mark. So probably do, do well to listen to that or watch that first before you listen to the rest of this episode. Uh, and then, yeah, if you've got any questions, please reach out. I think this is a topic that probably could be more than one episode but we tried to cover some of the issues uh as much as we can when i spoke to him last week just before the first round of 
Super Rugby Pacific Finals. So I'm I'm speaking with uh, Dr. David Bond. Um, this is a an episode that I I actually am really quite excited about because up until now I've been talking a lot about um, clubs and teams and high performance structures and cohesion and all these other things. And one of the things I did at the very start of my journey on making the documentary was actually a bit of research as much as I could. And and I I, I spent a bit of time looking through things like. Um, annual reports for mainly for Rugby Australia or, or the ARU, but also looking at a couple of the, um, um, the the provincial unions. Now, I'm not by any stretch of the, the imagination of a, a forensic financial expert, but um, I guess I sort of started thinking, you know, if there's a problem with the code, you know, could it be a financial issue? And you know, I dug deep, and there's a few things that we've put in the um, in the documentary, and I've touched upon in the podcast episodes. But largely speaking, I haven't really gone that far, and maybe it's because there's not a huge amount there. However, um, this man, um, you have uh, you've done some interesting um, work, uh, both in sort of academic papers, but also just I think simplifying or demystifying for some people. Um, the annual general meetings, uh, sorry, the annual reports that are, that are put out. And, and I should touch, if anyone's listening and they haven't watched it yet, please jump on YouTube, um, Google, uh, sorry, Google, search Rugby Australia back in the money. And it's a good short little seven minute clip from um, yourself, David. And, um, you know, I just think it's a really great way because it's a very different perspective, a different, very different focus that we don't often um, spend enough time on. And I think it's hugely important. But, mate, thanks for joining me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to get into some of the, uh, some of the mysteries of, uh, of rugby, the business of rugby today. <laughs> no, no, thank you for having me on. And, and thanks for that kind in- introduction and, and shout out. Mate, you so just quickly your background. Obviously, you know, um, big big rugby rugby fan and, and rugby rugby man. Um, I know, I've seen you. You've recently been getting um, having some some big nights out in uh, in Leichhardt supporting the Tars. Yeah, no, it's been it's been good. Um, I mean, certainly it's nice to see see some people out at the ground, and, and I'm sure yeah, sure the Waratahs are happy happy with that support. I mean, it's a it's a far cry from. Been out at Homebush last year for the Reds match, and mm. I don't know how many people there were, but you could. It'd be hard to hit hard to hit one if you if you threw a ball in the crowd. Um, <laughs> so it's really nice to see them them coming good. But yeah, and I've been playing for for a long time. Um, I was probably one of the interestingly enough, like I started ninety started playing as a kid in nineteen ninety two, which mm. is an auspicious year for Australian rugby, given it mm. was the year after the ninety one World Cup win. So I think that may well have had something to do with why I started playing. Um, and have been keeping around the traps in different guises ever since. Yeah. And and was that something that you know, it's interesting you talk about that because I, I, I remember talking to someone else about how you look at the sort of spikes of participation in Australian rugby, and it's usually around World Cup years, certainly around the Wallabies one, but even things like British Lions tours, there's always this yep. little boost across the board. Yeah, look, there is. Um, a colleague of mine actually had a look at that uh, a few years back, looking at the participation around rugby immediately post, and as you said, there was, there was a spike. It did... Through the annual reports, um, you could actually find the participation figures in quite nice detail for about 10 or so years after that. And mm. it had a bit of a bump and then it started to degrade. And I think in, in certain key markets, there was 
sort of that continual push by AFL and, and the NRL, um, unfortunately, had an impact there. But, you know, some really nice things potentially taking place with the, the Lions coming in a few years' time and then the World Cup or the World Cups in 27 and 29. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get to that. I, I just quickly, I guess, so looking at your um, your, your um, background, your, you, you, have you both, you're an academic, but have you also worked in, um, in the area of accounting um, sort of privately? No, I'm a career academic. Okay. Um, yeah. I, yeah, no. <laughs> um, look, I have I've done things. I have done some things outside, but in terms of sort of practicing, sort of down the big end of town or anything like that, no. Yeah. Um, did uh, did spend some time over in London uh, with the international regulator. Um, so for financial accounting standards. So, you know, this is all part of the same sort of space. Um, but yeah, yeah, sort of within academia that that whole period of time. And you're currently, and I'm just looking at your profiles, you're currently a board member of the Sydney Rugby Union and the Women's Sport Australia organisation. Yep. What yep. sort of capacity so, so, that, does that sort of involve? <laughs> uh, Women's Sport Australia, we're, we're a smaller um, independent body and just really looking to promote, um, you know, promote and advance uh, equality within just the sporting landscape generally. Mm. Uh, and there's a whole range of issues that, that are cropping up there and, um, so that's that's a very much roll up the sleeves. Less, I mean, there's governance involved, but it's more actually doing it and, and trying to put things in place. So we've actually um, had a number of sort of really neat things happen, including a major partnership with Cadbury around um, yeah. helping helping provide a, a grant program for uh, women's and girls teams uniforms around the country. So that was really well received, and um, so that was really nice to do. Rugby, the Sydney Rugby Union. So I've been on um, been on their board, or well, been on the board of the SIU since the end of 2019, um, and that times really, really well with the oh, new yeah. broadcast deal and COVID. So we, it was an interesting, it was an interesting period of time. And, and for those that, that haven't come across uh, the SIU before, our role is to basically run the Shoot Shield competition here in Sydney. So we yep. we manage that. Um, it's we do work closely with New South Wales. I mean, we are a separate entity, but we, we work closely with with um, with New South Wales Rugby Union and all the clubs that are part of that competition. Yep, it's, and, and then obviously the, the suburban competitions are different, run by a different union as well. Yep, asked. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot of different, and this is the learning curve of going into this. There's, and it probably in, in a funny way is to some extent the. I wouldn't say necessarily problems, but some of the the, mm. the obstacles that, that rugby in Australia face is there are getting alignment. And you talk about cohesion sort of earlier on and um, mm. cohesion obviously on the sporting field is important, but then getting that alignment across the code is mm. also really important. And we've seen that work well in places like in New Zealand. We've seen that work well in places like Ireland where they really kind of aligned the structure from the top um, down to the bottom we've got quite a number of different parties, even within the Sydney, even within New South Wales. So you've got New South Wales subbies, as you pointed to. Um, you've got New South Wales country. You've got uh, Sydney women's. You've got the schools. You've got referees. There's a whole range yeah. of different bodies involved in it, which, you know, I think everyone's speaking to each other um, more cohesively now. But again, it, it can get a little bit siloed from time to time. Okay. And I haven't sort of, I'm just going off my I mean I look at WA in Victoria and they're very much obviously they don't have as many organizations mm. so potentially as as 
as as less developed as they are, that might be easier to manage. Is Queensland, has that got as many different bodies? I know they've got things like GPS and a few different schools organisations, but are they as broken up as, say, New South Wales rugby? No. no, I don't believe so. And the only thing I can really speak to, I mean, I don't know all of their, their mm. structure um, in depth, but I do know that they don't have an equivalent body like the SIU up in Brisbane. Um, yeah. So the, the Hospital Cup, which is you know, their, their equivalent of the shoot shield or where their equivalent of the hospital cup mm. there that's run by the QRU. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. And it is interesting. Like looking at that and I look at, you know, so many of these sort of fractured lines. I mean, I, I played in, um, in, I mean, I don't play shoot shield, but I played for a shoot shield club back in the day. And it was interesting coming from WA, which was just, you know, the WA rugby union ran, all the whatever it was two divisions and maybe a, a rural division and then you came to sydney and it was like wow there's like divisions and there's subbies and multiple divisions there and I, I just couldn't get my head around it as a just as a as a guy trying to figure out which clubs were playing which and you know they didn't have relegation and promotion well they didn't then but then of course we've seen clubs go in and out of shoot shield but it, it is yeah, interesting <laughs> you know i wonder whether other states have managed to simplify it or whether it's just a numbers game you just physically yeah i mean that conversation around grades within and the number of grades within a club as an example has been there's there's as with anything rugby based and in to your earlier comment around you know how's that been on sydney rugby unions board it has a learning curve um yeah. you know lots of people are very passionate about the game which is fantastic and that's what you want um I've really learned to to get off socials because I just it's you know I mean there's lots of again lots of lots of viewpoints on things um, but you have to you have to sort of take to step back from that if you read through every comment about things that that mm. were or weren't or decisions that were or weren't made you'd go a bit crazy and, and that's yeah. a, that's only at our level I don't I don't even understand how people do that at sort of New South Wales or, or the RA level or, you know, even players, like they, they have to turn that sort of that noise off. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's a fair point. And I think that's something that I've tried to certainly for first and foremost, myself as a fan, not, not that I was kind of ever, you know, jumping online and, and bad mouthing people, but I think certainly as no. a fan, I would, I would be mystified. I'd, I'd be, get, I'd get angry about something that, you know, RA had done or you, you know, you look at, but there's never really much opportunity to, um, you know, break it down and actually understand, you know, we're not in the room, we're not on the boards. Well, you are on a board, but there's, you know what I mean? There's so many things that just does not translate through to the public domain. And I think that was something I wanted to try and do with this project was, you know, approach aspects of the game and try and, and try and just sort of articulate it so that as fans, we can be a little more informed and not get so um, upset about things. And I, I think a small example is what's happened with, um, the Waratahs playing this last year and, you know, everyone's mad that they play at the SCG and it's not a great rugby venue. And then, but, you know, realistically there are limitations to where they can play. There are, and I imagine that there are 10 different things the board uh, or New South Wales have to deal with and figure out how best to play a season and, and, and make it accessible to the fans. And, but that's never really communicated by them. And I don't think it's ever, articulated as well so that's usually why you then get people on social media blowing up 
Yeah, I mean, you do raise some, look, and I agree wholeheartedly in the sense that um, it's, it is really easy, whether it be in sport, whether it be in politics, whether it be in whatever facet of life, it's really easy to throw rocks from the outside. And sometimes they're, and sometimes they're deserved. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's that there are good decisions being made um, all the time. But without a full awareness of the rationale for those decisions, and, I, and it's hard to make, it is, I think it's important to hold fire a little bit on, on, mm. on some of those views. Now, that's not to say that they can't be put forward in the right way and, and people can be passionate, and I think they should be. Um, can things be communicated more clearly? Can think can decisions that you know boards make, that governments make, um, you know whoever decision makers, policy makers make, um, be done in such a way that 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 gets the rationale as to why these things have happened across? I think that is important, and you know from time to time that could be better done. Um, yeah. You know, I look at I only met her the once. Um, and this is talking about Raylene Castle. So she presented to us as part of the, the start of the, when we came in the broadcast deal, because that's when they'd gone out to tender. And, and um, you know, we were involved in that on a very, very minor note. I'm not trying to say we were, we were had much of a, much of a role in that. Yeah. But, but I mean, still, but you, you guys had products that was part of the package. So obviously yes, you had to, um, yeah. you know, have an opinion and no, have we, an input. We, we were certainly in a room. We probably weren't in the room, but you know, we yeah. were, we were involved in some capacity and, Look, I think she presented to us about her vision of where she was taking the code. Um, and, you know, I, I you know, thought she presented well. I thought, you know, her ideas are good. And, and it was like, it, it was a shame. It, it, everything landed the way it did because mm. I think she, where it's going now is actually, I think, in, in, in some way based upon the work that she's done. Now, yeah. could she have communicated some of and dealt with some of those issues better before she um before she stepped down i think she probably could have but then again like we can all do things um i think in hindsight we can all do things yeah. things better than what we did at the time uh, yeah it's a fair point i think I, I you know looking back at the history of rugby and look, we'll get into some of the the stuff around the, the end coming out of the exam reports but i look at the history of rugby in in a lot of countries but certainly in australia and it does feel as though there are heroes and there are villains across on, on the field and off the field. And sometimes when you look at it, yes, there's, there's, in, there's people that have, have, have made themselves to be influential, but some things are out of their control, you know, like economic factors, you know, yep. COVID, these sorts of things. But again, the history often then just focuses so much on the individuals and what the individuals did or didn't do. And I just think it's, um, it, it, it yeah, you can sometimes be, the greatest CEO and not have to do much or, or a terrible CEO who had all this stuff happen to them that no one else realized or, and the same could apply to a coach, you know, great coaches come in and, and reap the benefits of, of something that's happened around them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the stars align yeah. and, and happy days. So no, you're right. I mean, it's, there are um, external factors that absolutely play a role in these things. And yep. Yeah, it's and rugby unfortunately seems to have copped its fair share. Rugby in Australia certainly this seems to to have copped its fair share over the last few years. Um, you know, it, could it have handled things better you know, within itself? You know, I think it's always easy to judge from the outside, but um, you know, obviously 
some of the objective measures of, of where we are as a code and, and the popularity of the code sort of indicates, you know, it's not gone as well as it could have been um, over, yeah. over the last sort of 15, 20 years. Um, but, you know, being the optimist, there are definitely some green shoots, um, not just on the horizon. Actually, there's some really good things happening at the moment. And hopefully with the window of the next sort of five or 10 years that, you know, we can, we as a code um, can leverage that. So, so we're looking at the video you put out just last um, last month around um, just sort of you know summarising the the annual report for the financial yep. year twenty twenty one and and as you said there there are some positives I mean the biggest being that the the loss was nowhere near the the gravity of the loss in the previous year and mm. like to go from the twenty seven million dollar loss to a a four point five million dollar loss is obviously a, a great step in the right direction. Um, Without sort of focusing too much on, I guess, uh, the last 15 years, what do you think has has changed in, in say, the last two years? Because uh, to my, to, you know, again, looking at an outsider, I'm thinking, okay, well, they, there were a lot of costs that were cut because a lot of staff and people were let go. But then, you know, there was also lost revenue in, in 2020. But then, you know, there's World Rugby loans, then there's potentially... Um, other line and it's sort of hard to figure out which is why i loved your video because it just really simplified it and said it okay that that makes sense to me at the moment as to how they've been able to turn it around but yeah i guess what are your sort of overall comments of the last sort of you know 18 months and, and where it stands now yeah i mean an important thing you know an important important overarching thing for for a lot of sporting organizations and you know, Rugby Australia is an interesting one in the sense that it's a national body. It's not, you know, they run professional teams, but it's also kind of tasked with the development of rugby in the country. So, you know, it's not a for-profit entity in that, you know, they obviously trying to make profits um, in surpluses. They don't want to make losses. Um, yeah. But there's no, there's no shareholders per se that they're trying to make profits to return as dividends. It, it's to help develop the game. Um, in terms of... A lot of sporting codes, a lot of organizations don't really make a lot of money in terms okay, don't make a lot of profit. They may they may have strong revenues, but often those get matched pretty, pretty closely with either expenses that are that they're incurring in terms of sort of running their you know high performance teams, whether it be the Wallabies in AI in Rugby Australia's case, the Sevens teams. Um, obviously they've got administrative staff and marketing and, and whatnot, but they also uh, push money back to the provinces so rugby you know they provide them they provide you know 20 million there or thereabouts um you know in terms of grants back to the five provinces at the moment yeah. um and that's what codes do afl make a huge amount of money um mainly through their broadcast and then that gets dispersed out at around i think it is sort of 10 to 11 million dollars per AFL club. So a lot of clubs, um, a lot of clubs, a lot of organizations do this. The revenue streams that Rugby Australia primarily have um, are around match day broadcast and sponsorship. And so I mean there, there are other there are other bits and pieces in there, but I mean those are the three primary kind of drivers of of their revenues, which are again not dissimilar to pretty much any other any other any other organization. Um, the thing which hurt them in 2020 was just a reduction in games being played. Yeah. And so in terms of broadcasts, their broadcast went down 
from about 39 million in 2019 down to 25 million in 2020 and it bounced back up to 40 million in 21. So I mean that's when you start talking about 15 million dollars just you know off um, they made 98 million dollars in revenue in 2021. Like that's that's a, a fair that changes a fair amount. So they made yeah. 40 million dollars roughly half of their revenue is broadcast. Um, then you're talking about 22 in sponsorship. And sponsorship again has come up significantly since 21 or since 2020. Um, and match day, not surprisingly, has come up substantially since 2020 because there yeah. weren't a huge number of matches. And, and when there were matches, there were COVID restrictions. So it reduces. And, and that's just Wallaby matches. We're not talking super rugby matches. That's. Um, yeah, that, yes. So that's picking up anything that the Wallabies are doing. Then you'd, yeah. you'd be going down in New South Wales and their gate for, for yeah. their reports. And um, yeah, so this is talking Wallaby, Wallaby games. So I guess it's interesting. Like, a couple of questions. Firstly, over time, what has the, has the um, percentage of what broadcast match day and sponsorship represents in the revenue um, coming in? Has that ever evolved over time or has it always been pretty consistent at the same levels? Um, um, broadcast, assuming, assuming broadcast is the sort of the, the, usually the largest uh, share. Yeah, broadcast is, yeah, no, that's a good question. Broadcast has become a far more important piece of the pie. Um, it, it was trending towards uh, prior to, they had a really big bump in 2016. Um, yeah. So the final kind of block of their time with Fox was really was really solid. So prior to that, they were doing you know anywhere between 20 and 25 million a year in in, in broadcast um, broadcast revenue. It went up it went up to about 60 uh, across uh, 2016 to 18. So I mean that was you know a, a three times um, you know 300 increase for a period of time, and that obviously looks pretty healthy percentage wise it was still it was just north of about 50 percent of their revenue um coming off that deal that's when they and that's the move from from fox to stan um that's when they took that cut down to about you know sort of obviously 2020 was an odd year but you know to that 40 million dollar figure yeah so they took it they took a fair fair cut to get out of fox um was that was that um, deal in 2016? Do you think that was reflective globally of the way rugby was being valued? Because I remember being over in the UK during COVID. I remember there was a lot of discussions around how whether the English Premier League and some of the European leagues were just paying too much into salaries. Um, you know, they're, they're, like the the money that they were running at was not really what the true value of it is. And I don't know whether that was just something that happened globally, or was it? Um, you know, no, this is, it's no. That's a good question. Um, I think what's happened there, and look, and it's not something I've delved into specifically, mm. but some of the things I was aware of, and this is some you know other work I've been involved in around um, sort of streaming services and the increase in streaming services, and if you think about the influx and the penetration of Netflix of Stan, well, Netflix and Stan locally, you know, Disney Plus. Uh, whatever else is out there. I mean, there's obviously a ton of them. Um, these, the need for people to watch broadcast television, um, you know, why did you need to watch something in real time? And really where it was coming to was people will watch television 
in real time, which obviously then drives advertising revenue, mainly around reality television and yeah. sport. Because you don't, the timeliness of watching a match on, the, on a Saturday afternoon or on a, on a Friday night, there's no point just watching it on catch up on a Monday. Like it's the, the game's done. You're not going to binge watch an entire se- season of the Waratahs. Um, yeah. Maybe this season. I don't know. Maybe some people, <laughs> some people will. I don't know people that would. Um, maybe, maybe not the 2020 season, but certainly the 21. Um, but that's the fact that, and this is, this is just a, a, an educated guess. I wouldn't even go as close as say as a hypothesis is that I think there are a lot of people in you know, the media landscape that were getting worried about what content can we put on that people are actually going to, um, especially broadcast content that people will stick around to watch rather than just, just, jump on Netflix and, and binge watch Game of Thrones. Um, yeah. Actually, they're not on, on Netflix, but you get my point. But and it's it's so interesting think, since think, that time you're – sorry, um, yep. you, you, you now look at um, which of the streaming companies are investing in rugby and Amazon Prime is, is investing heavily um, over here. So, you know, I don't know what – again, was there sort of efforts made by then by the new newly re- rising streaming companies and, and that reflected um, – uh, an increase in price or whether that's sort of just the, you know, has now sort of started to kind of come to fruition with, with Amazon and whoever, whoever knows who else may try to invest in, in more sport. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating landscape, you know, because do sports go, you know, the end, the NBA type of route and, and run it yourself and it's, yeah. you will come to us and, and, as an organization, as a sport, as a brand, they're strong enough. I think they can they can do that. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, New South Wales, um, you know, this is becoming a little bit more sort of close to home. New South Wales has New South Wales um, rugby TV. Yeah. Now, True Shield isn't on that, but pretty much every other game that happens in New South Wales, um, you know, whether it be subbies, whether it be um, whether it be country, whether it be schools and whatnot, they have they're they're building a platform for people to be able to engage and consume that content in yeah. that way. So has it, you know, I think the streaming services are massively affecting people. Um, if you go back six years ago, um, very few of us had, you know, in terms of pay TV and, and, and things that and services we'd pay for streaming wise. I mean, I think I probably did have Foxtel back then, um, but you're paying a hundred and something dollars a month yeah. to get it. Uh, and you're locked into a contract for a fair period of time. And they would, and, companies, media companies were trying to lock down mm. content that they could put out that they knew people would watch sort of in real time. Um, Which now feels like and a the- very antiquated business model when everyone else is pricing it around sometimes under 10 bucks a month and, and you can opt in and out whenever you want. And that opting in and out is is such an important thing because we're, we're so now conditioned yeah. in all the ways we consume media, um, you know, Everything that we do is on that, you know, software as a service type model of a, of a month on, you know, yeah. month in, month out. If you want to drop out, you can drop out. There's no real reason not to do that. I mean, you know, even things like the UFC, I mean, they and UFC are a really good example of where sort of the power of broadcast because that's what really drives their pay-per-views is what drives their mm-hmm. platform. Um, and, you know, there was, oh, it was a couple of months ago, the uh, Adesanya Whitaker fight, you know, that was the first time of, I think, because I just couldn't get down to the pub. Um, I, that was the first time I paid for a pay for pay-per-view, paid the 10 bucks to join, you know, 
get UFC Fight Pass, you know, watched it, you know, paid for the pay-per-view and then just canned the thing the next month. Um, yeah. So that type of model, I think you'll start to see more of, but there has to be a reason for people to really connect. And that connection that, say, the UFC has to, to create people and characters out of their fighters that connect with the fans is a really important lesson, I think, for a lot of sport um, because it they have to do it because that is what drives um, that's what that's what drives their bottom line. If we if we can move on to again another aspect you were looking at, which I found quite interesting, which was around um, not revenues but um, loan loans and <laughs> uh, advances, and obviously this has been critical, and I think it was very um, obviously it was well known that World Rugby had had effectively bailed out a number of unions um, during COVID, Australia being um, probably one of the more common mm. ones. I think South Africa was another. They, they sort of received a, an amount. Yeah. They? Yeah, it's, I mean, I haven't looked at, I, I have looked at South African stuff a little while mm. ago. I haven't looked at them lately. I mean, they certainly, you know, weren't making a huge, you know, for the, for the game, which is so important over there, not the crazy amounts of money that you think they would. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, we certainly, World Rugby stood behind um, Rugby Australia last year, um, yep. which was, I think, needed. Um, it, you know, they're, they're still not out of, the, out of the financial straits yet. I mean, I think there's still negative equity um, based on 21. So it's not, yeah. not all entirely rosy. But yeah, they did get an advance um, from World Rugby last year. So was that? And this is probably more an accounting question. Was that an yep. advance or a or a loan, um, or what? What exactly would it be classified it, as? It was an advance um, against their. So it was an advance against their World Rugby, their World Cup participation. So each one of yep. the things that happens um, is that they that competing nations uh, will receive will receive grants from World Rugby um, throughout the year for various things that they play in. Um, yep. So to give you a sense of just the quantum of that in a normal kind of non-World Cup year for Australia, um, it's, they receive roughly about 600 ish thousand dollars a year from World Rugby. And I'd imagine that would go to things in relation to kind of 20s World Cups and, and whatnot. Yep. Um, then in the, the Rugby World Cup years, that gets boosted. Um, so in 2019, um, Rugby Australia received about $19 million in revenue um, from World Rugby. In 2015, it was about $19 million in revenue. Uh, 2011 was a little bit tighter. They only received about four. Um, mm. So it has sort of jumped up a bit. And that, in a way, that makes sense because often the test windows have been affected by yeah. that. And that, if that's one of the major ways that you generate gate, um, and it can potentially have impact on, on sponsorships and broadcasts if they're not if the, the broadcast deal is a separate one for the World Cup. In a way, I'd imagine these are in part making up for some of that lost revenue for participating yeah. in the World Cup on those in those years. So what that leads to is in 23, RA would expect there would be a certain amount of money coming in um, as they're participating in the World Cup. Yeah. Um, they're just getting some of that early. Gotcha. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So in in that time, would they still be receiving, say, the six hundred thousand or whatever it might be every year from World Rugby, or would that just get written off against the advance that they they receive? Look, I'm 
again, not being in the room and not knowing all the yeah. contractuals in, in ins and outs of exactly yeah. what got done, my somewhat naive opinion on this would be that it doesn't change anything other than the fact that they're just getting some of the money that they would have received in 23 and their participation in 23, they're just getting some of that. Early. Yeah. Um, I so mean, I don't, I don't imagine it would, but yeah. yeah. I guess the only risk from world rugby's perspective is not that Australia aren't going to be there, but more um, whether another COVID scenario, I'm touching wood when I say this, but another COVID type scenario um, railroads the the full operation of a French World Cup. But I mean, that's really, other than that, you know, they're, World Rugby are a very liquid organisation, aren't they? I don't know if you've looked at their their book. I haven't looked, I actually haven't looked at theirs their so much. Um, yeah. Don't talk about COVID happening in 23. We thought we were going to be through this in 21 and, and now it's 22 and there's still echoes of things. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've got my views on it. Look, I'm triple vaxxed. I, I got it in January, like from my point of view. And it's not, I'm, I know others have different kind of risk profiles and, and mm. you know, views on this, but I sort of want life to get back to normal somewhat. But yeah, yeah we've got to, we've got to roll with what the authorities and what the authorities say and, and hopefully a World Cup happens. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there's obviously a risk that um, something could keep happening. Um, but yeah, it's, Assuming business as usual, which we kind of have to imagine, and and actually technically from a from a financial reporting point of view, they have to kind of imagine there's you know that is a consideration. They can't imagine the world's going to end, or you know things yes. are going to get massively shut down, and there's going to be a major change in operations in the years to come. Because that would, if we started second guessing everything that would happen down the line, yeah. it would yeah. completely throw out so much of financial reporting, let alone just trying to get business done. Um, yeah. So it's just written into yeah. the into the likelihood as much as it would be if it was like an insurance type claim, like a you know. Uh, look, I'd imagine those conversations would have been. Yeah, yeah. Look, I wouldn't want to be an insurance company right at the moment. Who knows <laughs> to to insure against? Actually, I don't even want to think about that. That would be. Yeah, I'd imagine incredibly difficult. So the funding. So the the, the other item that that stuck out to me. One was actually there were two things. One was that this there was an HSBC loan that was paid out in the. 2021 financial year and i guess that was the year in which there was a lot of crunch um uh reducing and downsizing presumably was that a sort of a period where they were trying to just consolidate um i think they they just really needed cash and i think they they were able to secure some funding to help that um just to keep things ticking over i mean there were legitimate concerns around a number of business i mean a number of um, mm. If we're thinking from the Australian context, I mean, Cricket Australia, there was major concerns yeah. that they would just literally run out of cash. Um, we were looking, I mean, even there were concerns with the NRL and AFL, even though they were relatively well-placed at yeah. that point. Um, but if you suddenly turn, you know, again, if if match day is a major part of your income and if broadcast, there are certain caveats around your or certain requirements that you have certain this amount this much content being delivered um yep. you know and certainly from a, a shoot shield perspective we have requirements that we have a certain amount of content that gets delivered each week and across the season like that's something that yeah. we have to do for the funding that we get um that if that suddenly just stops and there was no guarantee in you know march april 2020 that things would come back anyway you know anytime yeah. soon and seventy percent of your income is coming from that. You're going to be hurting really quickly. So yeah. I think 
yeah, that that loan was that HSBC loan uh, was to, I think, just help tide things over. And then the loan note as well as this other sort of item, which is twenty million. But again, that's sort of like <laughs> now uh, everything's been borrowed borrowed off that um, to basically keep them afloat until which is which is let's face it now a, a rosier future with the um world cup but also in between that the british lions tour yeah look the british lions is a really yeah really important one um getting back you know even from a, a little bit more of a parochial um provincial perspective the waratah has been able to move back to a home venue where they're not on the road and not at different places week in week out um will make a difference um, and they really needed, and, and talking to people in the know, they really needed this year to be successful because that would give them momentum into moving back to their home base. Like yeah. you can kind of imagine what they'd be staring down the barrel of if, if they went another donut season this season. Yeah. Trying to attract fans in back home would be far more difficult. And now they actually have something, they've got something to sell. In that, in that sense, yeah, I do. I do remember a few years ago when you know there was after the twenty sort of the the the, the triumph of twenty fourteen, and then you know you kind of had a couple of years where there was this sort of noticeable drop off in attendance, and then they didn't <laughs> make a finals. And I, I remember sort of whoever it was at the time talking about how tough that was if any Super Rugby team didn't make a final because so many of them had built into their model they need that extra final because they need that extra match day gate gate receipt and if you don't get it it just puts so much pressure on the organization um and so i guess my question is 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 matched out of the revenue you know the broadcast sponsorship and match day presumably for the the provincial unions match day is probably one of the biggest things that can fluctuate and 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 have an influence yeah the yeah match day is Important. I mean, obviously, the, the Waratahs have unfortunately been struggling with a front of jersey sponsor yeah. um, for a little bit. If you, because I guess other things are sort of semi-fixed in terms of that they're always going to get the same amount of money from Rugby Australia to manage the yeah, team it's... and manage the organisation, which comes out of broadcast for for um, that that it comes in. But I guess commercial sponsorship, they can make their own deals with so... sponsors, and and that might be better or worse. Um, yeah, no, they do. Um, just rolling down on while we're talking, um, uh, the the biggest chunk of funding um, for, and this is up until I haven't I haven't actually included the twenty one figures um, in there, but for Waratahs uh, or New South Wales Rugby as a whole, um, just to give you a, just to give you a bit of a sense of it. Um, RA funding is the biggest, like that flow through from RA is the biggest chunk of it. You're talking, yeah. you know, in 2020, out of $13 million in revenue, uh, four and a half was from was from rugby. Now that yeah. that makes sense because you know they're part of the TV broadcast. So that's it's not like it's RA just, you know, gifting money to them. This is part of that that broadcast mm-hmm. deal. Um stadium, well, they got stadium rebates were, were a major part. And this is why they end up having to play it. You know, a lot of not just rugby, not just rugby union clubs, but you know, NRL will play a lot of games out at Homebush. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the suburban grounds, you know, whilst some of them can be a little bit dilapidated, I mean, I actually quite like, like, I really enjoy going out to Leichhardt. It's not as schmick as some of the venues that they play at, but it's just 
feels good in that way. Um, maybe I'm not the target market that, that, that they're trying to go for with, with fancier stadiums, but so stadium rebates were about two. Um, they sponsorship one and a half. Uh, yeah, it's uh, where's actually match day in 2020 was probably actually match day was, yeah, last year was, um, obviously yeah, struggled a bit ne- because ne- of negligible. The, yeah, it was just it was negligible um, last year, but I mean. Match day proceeds, um, you know, isn't a huge like it's it's important, but it's not a, a, one of their bigger ones. I mean, certainly sponsorship is important, and they've unfortunately struggled a little bit the last couple of years. And certainly, not having a front of jersey sponsor is, is yeah. hurt. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, match day is important, and I think that that top up of if you can get thirty thousand people, you know, 30,000 people to a semi, you know, when Tars won it. In 2014, I think I think there were about 60,000 there. But you know, yeah. Homebush, like I was out there for it. Homebush wasn't full, but it was a pretty solid was crowd. Huge. I mean, that's I, it was I, I was there. That was I think one of the biggest. I'd say it was probably one of the biggest. Oh, no, I have been into a Bledisloe at, at, at Aussie Stadium or Homebush, but um, it was one of the probably it was definitely the biggest Super Rugby. Oh, it was game I'd ever been to. Anything outside yeah, of hands, international, it was huge. Yeah, hands down, outside of an international, like it was it was. Yeah, really big because it was about it was about sixty. Um, we were down the wrong end of the field when when the when the final <laughs> shot got taken. So it took us a moment to actually realize he got it, um, yeah, but yeah. No, it was good nonetheless. Uh, yeah, so I mean that that match day, that getting a final, mm. getting a final with the crowd is really important. Um, did Did you ever look at the future of rugby inquiry that they? that rugby Australia went through with, um, you know, the Senate inquiry after the force was axed. I, I, I did a, a bit of, I did an episode looking at the Western force and I, I sort of had done some research on that, but it really laid bare the, the amount of money that was um, given to each of the unions, given each of the clubs, but also all these additional monies that were given over the years to, uh, you know, ec- extra, extra, extraordinary money that was granted, to certainly the rebels who received probably the, the most amount, but also the force. And then, and it was just very, you know, and I don't know whether anyone out of that was able to then sort of make someone independently was able to l- learn anything further, but it certainly, um, it did seem uh, to be a, a really tough year to year process, not just for the unions, but also rugby Australia having to constantly figure out who they should be giving money to and, and how much. Yeah, it's. I'd, I'll, I'll be honest. I haven't actually mm. um, had a look at that. It is what this gets to. Funnily enough, it is lines up a little bit with some of the earlier part of the conversation around alignment. Um, yeah. In that, you know, there is an argument. I mean, rugby is a federated model, and the AFL changed away from that. So they were the AFL Commission. Now were they able to sort of make, um, you know, there is. From what I've been, from what I understand, I mean, they have kind of almost branch offices in the states, and AFL, you know, will send people out on behalf of, you know, it'll be AFL um, staffers who will go and assist with with sort of development office type roles, and then sort of wear whatever kit they need to wear for whichever location they're in, um, yeah. in terms of sort of to pushing the the club bandwagon. Um, I think rugby still there are so many different groups still involved. Um, and look, everyone I think is trying, I don't think there's many people out there. I mean, could I say 
there's no one out there who's doing it completely for their own benefit and they don't really care about the game at large. I'd, I'd say that if there are any, they're, they're not common. Um, yeah. Most people are trying to do do things for the good of the game. But um, the interesting, obviously, thing is if you've got multiple boards out there, I mean, legally, their requirements are to do what is their, their legal requirements as directors is to do the best and to do what is right by their their board, like for their organization. That is who they are responsible for. So the directors of New South Wales, I mean, they don't necessarily seek harm on anyone else, but their role is to further the purpose of New South Wales yeah. Rugby Union. Rugby Australia is to further the purpose of Rugby Australia. Um, can there be greater alignment that helps, you know, maybe cut out some duplication of, of sort of off-field activities? I mean, do you need... Um, do you need some of the back office things that happen separately in each individual organization being done separately by each individual organization? Does that help the code yeah. as a whole? Um, and I'm not obviously I say that, and that would that would mean unfortunately, people, you know, potentially people's jobs in that. Um, so I know that's a difficult, you know, there's not that's not an easy, easy way forward either. Um, yeah. But it does feel like there is a little bit of duplication that happens, and how do we, you know, is that always beneficial if we're trying to sort of fight each other? Whereas it's the code having a battle, like the, the fight is with arguably other codes. Yeah. I guess I, 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 one thing that I've often thought about is listening to you then is that I, I've often wondered why if Rugby Australia is, is receiving the, the bulk of the money that the game can raise in, in the country and then they have to, they give it out to all the different um um, entities why are they not in a position or why what is stopping them from actually trying to sort of take more control over things from the sort of top to the bottom you know because it, it obviously is a it, it, it you know like you said there's there's long-standing arrangements in place for them to say well the community game is managed by the provincial unions and we'll just run the wallabies and other things but you know so much of the community game does rely on kind of what's happening at the top end yet they don't have that control of the middle part yeah i think potentially i mean the just the governance model may push against that a little bit because of the way that the different states and the different stakeholders who vote in the board for ra and mm. like how that that plays a role in it may pushed against that a little bit um yeah look i also think in in some way shape or form i'm potentially um you know it isn't rugby doesn't generate i mean at the moment i mean we we talk about you know they made 98 million dollars and this just to put it into context um because people talk about sort of the the intrusion of afl into heartland heartland schools in sort of sydney and i'm sure they're doing it and they're doing the same up in brisbane so rugby's revenue in 2021 was about 100 million. Mm. Yeah. You're talking AFL revenue close to 800 million. Yeah. Like it's it's a very different just level and that's that is just the AFL revenue. That's not club that's not the 16 clubs and their revenues and yes they do get some money from AFL but they generate their own revenues as well. Lots yeah. of those clubs which none of New South Wales don't Queensland don't um, lots of AFL clubs have licensed premises. Um, yeah. There's, you know, some, not all, will have, you know, gaming revenue. 
NRL, much the same. A lot of them will have licensed premises um, yeah. and gaming revenue is another feature of them. But, you know, the NRL, uh, NRL, you know, you're talking sort of five, you know, four or $500 million. So, I mean, mm. the ability to put, um, to sort of fund those development type opportunities um, and not really to have to run a high performance team yeah. or teams I mean, that, that's quite, a, they're quite different beasts. I mean, yes, it would be great if we had, you know, as a code, the sort of money AFL does, but AFL can do things because they don't have to run, you know, I don't think they, I don't know when they last played uh, international rules. Um, yeah. You know, I, I haven't seen a game like that play for a while, but they don't have to have, you know, a, a, a top flight, you know, international team that they're running and they're, they're touring internationally. They don't have, yeah. you know, under 20s national levels. They don't have two, you know, that, they unfortunately don't pay the Wallaroo. The Wallaroos get some money. The the Super W don't get any, which is an issue. Um, yeah. You know, the sevens, they've got, you know, the men's and women's sevens teams who are just absolutely talking about, you know, nice things happening. You're absolutely killing it at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. A lot of that gets funded out of a very much smaller pot of money. Um, looking ahead at the future windfalls, let's talk about the Rugby World Cup. Should they just invest in property <laughs> split half the money and put put half of it into rugby programs and half it into i don't know buy a couple of um rsls like what like is that but and I, I, say, I say that in jest but then i look at some things like um clubs like exeter uh, i think there are a number of cases around australia and and even some of the french clubs that own their own stadiums and and rent them out for concerts and things is that like uh, afl of marvel um yeah so no yeah. i mean you, like I, I don't think it was said too facetiously um yeah. i would say don't invest in bitcoin but i'm not trying to provide <laughs> financial advice one way or another and <laughs> and yeah, i don't know i don't understand the whole crypto thing and and it just it seems like someone's been taken for a ride there or it could be a very <laughs> legitimate thing and i just don't know. Um, I'm going to stay well clear of that, but I hope they don't go off and invest in um, in crypto. Um, look, in terms of what, they, but in 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 seriousness, the difficulty is, I suppose, managing, and there's always going to be that tension with who, like players, and who generates the income. Yeah. Um, because there is a view and look, and I can absolutely see where it comes from the, you know, the players are the product in many ways, in many ways. And they're the ones on, on the field and they're the ones that fans get around. And, and that's why you watch the game. Um, there will be a windfall. I mean, certainly, you know, the spikes that we've seen, um, you know, and if you, I'm pretty sure I put, I'll have to recall the actual video but i'm pretty sure they showed the sort of graph over time of what their revenues have been and, and there was a very demonstrable spike in mm. um 2000 and 2003 um well it was 45 about 45 million i think according to um yeah the revenue one, figure was various. yeah so in, in 2003 sorry um, 45 million was the the world the the, the money they made the prop, from the world cup the so yeah, the, yeah. The, the total revenue but that was the portion of yeah it. so yeah so revenue they they put in over $220 million in revenue. And that's using 2003 yeah. figures um, back in, in, in revenue. I mean, obviously there was, they also had, you know, there was a huge cost to running that. Um, and they landed, they landed with, um, yeah, about a $40 million profit, 
which was as compared to the year before, which was about seven, the year after was about four. So, I mean, the windfall, yeah, was about probably more kind of 35 when all said, done and told. So, like, it, it which funnily enough, when you compare to some, some of what the AFL and NRL doing in, in revenue, it doesn't actually seem like a huge amount of money, but it is still an important amount of money. Yeah. Um, when you come to 2013 and... Uh, 2013 in the Lions, the def- the the surplus there was 29. Yeah. So a very different beast. But the year before they made a loss, the year after they made a loss. So I mean, again, you're talking about sort of 30 million dollar um sort of uptick. Yeah. It's for huge. the Lions, yeah. yeah. Which is really important. Um, so the financial is important. Um, so you know, should they be expecting? And look, I'm not anywhere close enough to anyone to be able to talk about what their expectations are, but, you know, I'd, I'd be hoping they're thinking of more than, you know, sort of that 30, $40 million a year for both 2025 and then 27. Mm. But I think more importantly than just the financials is having two back-to-back major events with effectively free-to-wear, you know, with Stan, I mean, it is, it is, pay tv but it's not pay tv as we used to know when you're paying 100 a month it's yeah the 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 barrier to entry is a lot lower we have a, as a code such a great opportunity to just capture hearts and minds and just engage the country in a way just to go this is a game that's worth getting back around um well, i guess I think that- that's that's the that's the great possibility out of all of it and I guess that's sort of one of the things I sort of was thinking about after it got announced, you know, I was happy, happy as anyone would be, but obviously I'm a bit of a, I wouldn't say I'm complete, a complete cynic, but I, I certainly have been looking at things through cautious sort of eyes. And I just say that because it's just, you know, we've all sort of lived through a bit of pain in the last 10, 15 years. It's seen things go up and down and and like at the moment we're up, it's great, but it has been a bit of a roller coaster ride. And I'm sort of hoping that we continue just, moving in more the upward trajectory and so my only concern is that while it's great that we've got a future windfall is is the current model by which the game is structured is that is that still good enough because we don't want to be leaking money and then getting bailed out there and then we've still got this sort of Mm. you know business model of the way you know it's it's set up with our federated system that's still not going to be able to take us in a you know as you said we're not trying to make huge amounts of profits but you know the organization also has to be sort of aiming to get surpluses every year you know yeah no it's a good question and i think the difficulty the difficulty is it's hard to use the last two years as a really strong comparison point of how, you know, from a, from a profit point of view, but even an organizational point of view, yeah. how things have happened, because it has just been so different. Um, the things that have happened and, and the effects that have had on, you know, on teams, on, on individuals, you know, I mean, you, to hear, like I was, I was fortunate that, you know, my work that um, I wasn't at risk of losing a wage um, during that period of time. And if anything worked a bit like there were other stresses out of it, but it, it wasn't the fact that I may not be able to sort of 
put in sort of put food on the table. But yeah. you know, knowing people that were getting laid, you know, laid off, that knowing people that were getting stood down, um, you know, seeing small businesses shut, like it was hard, and and that affected sport and sporting organisations in a massive way. Like there was massive cuts that took place. Um, you know, the the upside of that, as much as that sounds pretty negative, is you know, hopefully that people looked at what was kind of core in terms of operations and what they needed yeah. to do, what, once you get rid of all the bells, you know, sounds like I'm talking about people as bells and whistles, which I'm not, yeah. but once you sort of strip back to the key things you really need to be focused on and to start to deliver on that in that environment, can you, I think that certainly the Waratahs have, have I think, seen some of that now and yeah. that potentially leads itself in a good way. Hopefully RA have, you know, doing that and some of the noise you're hearing externally has been around that, um, yeah. that they're willing to, they've kind of understood what's happened. They understand, kind of understand what needs to happen. And the fact that um, Hamish McClellan sort of led that decision not to go the private equity route off the bat and to take, mm-hmm. you know, what was a, a loan at, you know, talking to a, a colleague of mine um, that was, didn't exactly put Rugby Australia's um, sort of financial position in a good light that they were willing to sort of, they had to borrow at you know, the rate that they did. Um, but they were like, we're going to do this because we want to take, we want to s- s- sort of stay in control of our destiny because we think, we believe that the future will be better. Um, yeah. I, is there still issues around governance and, and how the model works and, and how things are organised? Look, there is. Is that going to be fixed up in the short term? <laughs> Um, I'd probably not. Say prob- <laughs> I'd say probably not. Um, these things, these things take time. Yeah. Um, I, I look. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you. Um, I'll sort of probably wrap up. But I, you brought up. Yep. Uh, you, you made a. Um, you brought up private equity, which was something I was wanting to ask you. And, and you, you're right. I mean, I, I've. I guess I'm sort of looking at it from the point of view of why would they want to jump into bed with private equity now, where they've just had we had a really chaotic couple of years and it's you know time to reset and build the brand up so it can then you know be more valuable in hopefully five to to sort of 10 years time but um i guess one question is what how do you think private equity come in positively assist australian rugby because i think the concern that you know you jump to private equity to try and um plug the holes is probably not the idea. You know, it should be there for sort of, you know, to expand a, an asset that's sort of, you know, operating well. Yeah, look, the way I'll answer that is not directly with RA's um, situation and nor with New Zealand because, I mean, they're, they've, they're going down that route. Yeah. But a general comment around a lot of sport now is it true of every single sport and every single person involved with administrating 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 and governing sport no but in many situations there's that still that sort of ex a lot of people you know like i'm i suppose i'm an ex-player of some minor caliber i'm very minor (laughs) that they've been involved from a playing point of view and the reason they're getting involved in that front is not necessarily because of, you know, whether it be 
you know, experience, like sort of business experience or, or sort of other things which would help from a from a, that side of things. Like sport is a professional business nowadays and it needs to be very much seen through that lens. And I think there's still probably echoes of, um, you know, in, in many places that that's not, it's probably not as professional as it could be yet. And again, that's not saying there's some really good quality people all the way through, you know, all the way through rugby you know, all around the country in all different levels. Um, but there are still kind of hangovers to sort of the way things were. And it's important as a code, we still rec- we still recognize that history is an important part of the code and the product and what it is, um, but also with an eye to the future, what, you know, what, you know, what kids are going to do, what, what new trends are happening in terms of how yeah. people consume media, how people consume sport, how people, what people do with their leisure time. Because I know I mentioned that the other codes are the enemy. I, I don't necessarily know that's the case. I mean, both my girls are really active, but the amount of time they also spend, you know, playing multiplayer games and, and Minecraft and, and other things, you know, with friends, so it's not all just sort of on their own. Like, it's there are a huge number of other competitors to eyeballs and yeah. to bums on seats than just other sporting organizations. Yeah. And I think it looks, it's an interesting point you make, cause I've sort of thought a lot about it. Like where are, where's the new competitive advantage that rugby could have? And actually you're right. It's probably, it's more a sport sporting question is, you know, where do you go next? How do you change the sporting experience? How do you, you know, you know, evolve with the ever evolving. And I think this is what rugby has to com- can comprehend is that it, since professionalism, whatever, 25, 26 years ago, not really much has changed in Australia in terms of the way the game is, is experienced. And I think they're trying, they're certainly, I, I get the sense from, you know, broadcasters like Stan, they're trying to change it. And, and, but, but I think, you know, it feels like there's another evolution that could happen in our lifetime that yeah. might change things. There is, and the way, look, I'll be honest, for a lot of people, the lay audience out there that doesn't really watch rugby, watching a mall, mm. even a scrum, like they have no idea, like most people have no idea what's going on. And and even for some of the purists, we don't, I mean, I was yeah. a winger, so I don't know half of what's going on most <laughs> of the time. But this is where, and I touched on it before, I think what, and for anyone that's heard me talk about this, I seem to bang on about the UFC a lot, even though I don't actually, don't watch a huge amount of it, but I do watch some of the stuff they do on YouTube. Is that for a sport that is ostensibly about other people punching punching each other and kicking each other in the head? Mm. Um, and there's some there's some other sort of grappling parts to it as well. If you watch some of that, and one, if you're not into that sort of thing, and two, if you don't understand certainly the ground game, you look at it and it makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. How they get people engaged with it is by selling. You're, you're talking about UFC, right? I was like, yeah. Punching and grappling. Yeah. What is this? No, no. French, is, oh, are you no. talking about French no, second not, division not, rugby? Or? <laughs> no, I'm not, yeah, I was about to say, I'm not talking about French French rugby. Um, <laughs> it's you, people get engaged with it and they have a very um, strong fan base because mm. they sell the fighter, they sell the story of the fighter, they sell the individual. People get engaged with the person. Mm. And then that's how that, that's the onboarding. I mean, if that's the thing that I think starting to happen a little bit, you know, in Australian rugby, we're starting to know who people are. Like you sell that story, you sell the individual that then gets people in the gate. And then, you know, hopefully the fan experience of what happens on the ground. And look, some of the activation, 
you know, there's always room for improvement. I, um, that's not my sort of expertise, but you sort of think there could be things that can be done mm. better in that sense. And, I, and I'm sure there's evolutions on that, but it's how do we get people enthused about it, about a game and it's the stories and that's what people yearn for. Yeah. Mate, well, look, I, I, I do appreciate your time and I think it's, I find this stuff interesting because I think, as I said at the start, I just think there's so many perspectives to the way we, we engage with the game and certainly as hardcore fans, you know, I know you talk to a few people on social media as, as do I. And like there, there, there is a lot of, amongst all the noise, there's a lot of positive conversation where I think people are just grasping to find the solution to the puzzle of, you know, how can the game be, you know, the best possible shape it, it could be. And, and I think kind of, you know, it's one of those things where it is a, I, I see it as a bit of a puzzle and, and it may take a while, but there does certainly seem to be some positive things ahead. And, and, and hopefully the, the, the annual reports and the balance sheets start to reflect that. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to your, your, I'm hoping next year you'll, you'll have an even more positive uh, video um, come, uh, come, come May, 2023. Yeah, like I hope the update, I hope the, the 2023 update will be just continuing a, a nice upward trend. Yeah. But mate, I really do appreciate it. Um, who knows? Hopefully we'll cross paths at some point if I can get back to you, South Wales. But mate, good luck with the <laughs> uh the TARS this 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 week. I think it'll be a yeah. uh, huge huge weekend weekend of rugby. <sighs> I don't write them off, but yeah, look, I'm you know hopeful, but Let's see what happens. I, I don't think you can write them off. Saturday. I think I think they are the most. Um, I wouldn't say the, uh, you know, the unpredictable team, but I think they've certainly surprised my, myself included. They've surprised a lot of people this year. They have. They have. So now DC's done a great job with them. Brilliant. All right. Well, Dave, I really do appreciate it, and uh, mate, thanks for talking. Right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is the Gold Digger Podcast Series. A spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durrant. Music from this episode is by Ryan Papahatsis and Brad Vanderlucht from Fade Out Audio and will feature in the upcoming film. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby and follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.